Welcome to today's episode of Neural Pathways, where your neuroscience degree can take you, presented to you by Healthy Brains, Healthy Lives at McGill University. I'm your host, Rana Kafuri, and I'm here with McGill alumni to help provide some inspiration on what to do after your graduate studies in neuroscience. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. David Mendez da Silva. David completed his PhD at McGill in 2009, and he is now a medical translator and the producer and host of his own podcast, Papa PhD. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm super happy to be on uh, Neural Pathways. <laughs> so you host a podcast yourself called Papa PhD. Can you tell me about that and what led you to start that? So Papa PhD is kind of a passion project of mine. Uh, I, I'm, we're going to talk about what I do later on, but uh, I mostly I freelance and uh, I had a lull. Uh, the big project finished. I had a lull at a certain point last year. And I came across this article that said why you should start a podcast in 2019. And uh, that reading that kind of connected with an idea of mine that I've had for a while after participating in, in different career panels uh, here at McGill, which is I, I felt and I, I, I had the, um, this notion that uh, graduate students and postdocs, researcher, researchers that were um, <clears throat> in the academic track, let's say, were still uh, dealing with questions and doubts that I had while I was doing my PhD pertaining to what's coming next. What are my, uh, what are my chances to be a professor? That's number one. And uh, if that doesn't pan out, Am I, you know, did I waste five, six, seven years of my life? You know, it's a big, it's a very heavy doubt to have. And uh, having noticed that and having read this article and being kind of a, you know, an audio geek myself, I've done, I've, 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 I produced a song on molecular motors in 2010 for another podcast that got onto the seed, to, onto a CD, things like that. I, had a, I have a knack for these things. And the two ideas gelled together and I said, you know, I know a lot of people who were with me during the PhD and who are not in the academic track anymore. Or I know people who are professors but do other things, do a lot of outreach. I'm going to start a podcast where I'm going to showcase their stories. And uh, the important thing about showcasing stories is showing good sides and bad sides. You know, with the difficulties they had, but then the, the opportunities that arose. And, uh, you know, one one thing led to the next. I... I learn how to you know build a podcast that that took some time and uh, i got my first set of guests and my first like batch of interviews and and i launched last summer yeah. and it's been doing well so far it seems it's been doing well i've been meeting a lot of interesting people and now i've been interviewing even people who either reached out because they saw either my presence either on instagram or twitter or even and they LinkedIn, wanted to share their story and they wanted to share their story but then also people whom, whom I interview, they said, oh, you should talk to this person. And so it's been it's been going well. I'm super happy uh, I, I embarked on this adventure. And uh, and actually, I'm super happy to be here today in something that McGill is doing and, and uh, Healthy Brains, Healthy Lives. I think it's a, it's a great idea and it's a great platform. And the format, the podcast format, for me, uh, it's, it's really something I... I you know, I uh, consume a lot. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts yeah, myself. Just, instead of just listening to music when you're commuting, it's so much better to just that, listen to just podcasts, commuting. I find. Yeah. Exactly. I totally agree. And so because it's, it was a format that I, that I liked, it, you know, it felt, you know, I think if I'm able to uh, invite the right people, ask them the right questions, listeners out there will gain, will be inspired, and, uh, and we'll see 
oh, you know what, there's a future out there and it doesn't look so gloomy or it's not gloomy at all. It, the, potential, the potential is almost infinite after a PhD of what you can do. Yeah, and so listeners of this podcast should definitely check that out because we kind of have the same goal in mind. So on top of your podcast, what else do you do? So what I do, and maybe I'm going to just kind of say what I, how I transitioned after my PhD. When I was, uh, after turning in my thesis, I started looking around and uh, in the institute where I was, I heard of people who were not anymore, who were no longer at the institute and were doing things that kind of interested me. I've always been interested in languages and I heard that this company here at, in Montreal was like actively recruiting people from like with, a P, with PhDs uh, from McGill for medical writing. I got. I tried to get the the, the contact of, of one of, of these people who were who had uh, transitioned to that company, and she said, "Oh, sure, send me your CV. I can look at it, and uh, and I, eventually I can pass it on to uh, HR," which was what happened. And uh, you know, interview process, uh, first interview, second interview. There's some tests, the writing tests, etc., that they do to to see if you fit, because it's you know the language and. Uh, what exactly is medical writing? So you okay, that's a very good question, and it's a wide it's a wide domain. Uh, what this what what I did in, and what this company did was prepare materials, training materials mostly, for pharma companies for their sales force or um, executive summaries for the ma- for management, always uh, to do with a product lo- like a drug launch or a new indication for a drug. Uh, so there were like uh, you know there were people uh, writing uh, treatment landscape pieces. The, uh, often we would write also um, it's a whole set of things, uh, disease uh, disease state, um, physiopathology of the disease. Right. So, so disseminating information. It's okay. yeah in a way that's that's what also attracted me because I because I had we talked uh, off the mic that I one of the things that I wanted to do for a long time is kind of teach science in whichever way. Uh, possible and in a way this this was it so you got into the into this this company there's a a very strong onboarding uh, system they kind of teach you how to change your language to fit what what their what the audience is going because if you write in the academic style it's not going to go through and then there's other things like around that there's games that are that are created to to teach concepts and all around training people that are going to uh, promote or sell this drug, this treatment, etc. So, so, so it was specific to the employees, not to the general public. Yes, this position okay. exactly. This said, it you know there may be pieces, and I, I don't know what it's been a while now that that I that I left. They, there may be pieces that are uh, aimed at the public because uh, sometimes, if especially if something is new, there's going to be promotional material for for the public to the the. I don't. I have. I didn't work in any of those things. Mostly, it had to do with the big meetings and things like that, where there's even activities. Uh, it was really, really interesting. I, I really learned a lot um, uh, in in this company and, and with this group of people. But uh, I know other people who are who do medical writing, and what they do is, again, let's say uh, some a la- a lab and. Often they'll have clients that are also pharmas, but there's a re- research that's doing that's being done in pharma, and you know an article needs to be written. It's, it needs to be you know well well written, and uh, um, often what they do is they they get the services of a medical writer, who will then take the data and write the article 
and pre and prepare all all of that side and the people at the pharma will keep on working on their on their research on what their so <laughs> expertise that, that's another type of medical writing uh, and and I, I imagine there's you know i'm sure there's more it's a pretty general term i guess yes yeah. it, it is general it can apply to different things so you started to freelance after working at this company then so after almost almost five years working there learning a lot one one of the things that uh, I, i've always loved and i've mentioned it is languages and i got an opportunity to It was interesting because it was as a it was to work as a freelancer, but it was a lot of work. So I was almost almost an employee of that of that uh, company, and the the person who was like a project manager in, uh, internally uh, in that company, I know her personally, and she wrote said, "So do you translate uh, English to French, um, or actually uh, French to English in this case?" Uh, because if if you do, you know, we'd like to maybe uh, to get, to get your services, and I talked with her it, it was really attractive to me and then this is when I, I transitioned to working freelance and uh, at that time I worked almost exclusively with this one client and uh, again uh, you know learned a lot and I was doing something that I loved not more than writing but it's something that's close to my heart languages translation eventually I ended up uh, here at the continuing studies school at McGill I, I got a certificate in, in translation after you know a year uh, a couple of years doing that I said okay This is really cool. I like it. Let's go get some education on, you know, on what, you know, on, on, on the theory Just of like translation. Just like paper proof that I can do this. <laughs> exactly. And, and even getting more, you know, getting my more tools to, to do the work in a more uh, structured way and feeling, you know, that, that yeah, and improving my workflow, et cetera, et cetera. So going back to when you were a PhD, yeah. what did you do? Your, what was your research on? My research was, uh, I was I was at the MNI, so it was special because I was a visiting research student. My university is a Portuguese university, was at the University of Coimbra. I was part of a PhD program there. And, um, but here, I, so I, I chose to came here, to, I chose to come here uh, to do my research at the MNI, at the, the BTRC on cell biology. And it was, uh, it was studying the olfactory uh, epithelium and specifically the role of a uh, receptor and the ligand, so neogenin and RGMB, on the, the development uh, and uh, the differentiation of the different cell types in the olfactory epithelium. The idea was, you know, is always to, especially at the MNI and at that center, to understand what is, you know, how do these cells keep uh, regenerating throughout life? How is that regulated? Or, you, you know, how does the number of, of uh, of uh, olfactory neurons keep almost the same, except then when you get old, you start losing them, et cetera, et cetera. That was kind of the curiosity be behind the project, So, but but that was the the theme, yeah. So how did your career goals change throughout your graduate studies? Well, actually, th there, there was things, there were, there were difficulties uh, in the sense that uh, I came, you know, I, I was very attracted to the subject, uh, and uh, but, but I had a very limited time of, of scholarship that I had from Portugal and starting you know starting year one two some of the first projects I started I tried to start there were, there were roadblocks didn't work so my time was getting really short like in in England you, you do a PhD in three years and that's it but here I learned that no people six seven it can be quite long so at a certain point my money ended and then my PI had to start you know because I, I was a visiting research student, I wasn't 
eligible for like for funding yeah because of my status so what happened is that the, the PhD ended and I had no publications, so I had to, to defend just, a, you know, I had to write a thesis and defend uh, defend the thesis without publications, with, which is less than ideal and which kind of dictates that you're not, you know, unless you, you're really inspired and you find a way to kind of compensate for that, you're not going to follow into the academic track. Uh, so when I started hitting these roadblocks, then there was the money aspect and you know, it got difficult, and th and I I had I started thinking thinking right away. Okay, I'm not going to be a university professor. Not by the way, not how things are looking right now. So what's out there? And and that that was when, and I would say a year uh, three four uh, or four five something like that. So what what strategies did you use to kind of think about what else is out there for you to do? Well, the first. Thing that I did was uh, go to CAPS, go to the Korean Pla and uh, Planning Services here at McGill, and see what they had for PhDs. And they, they I discovered they have they had a lot of things. And actually, because of the difficulties and the the, the, the stress and anyway the anxiety that came from that, I, I they they had a PhD support group which which I did uh, go to. Um, but they had counseling. Uh, they had uh, different things. I. I remember um, I went to uh, some to a seminar on uh, imposter syndrome, but basically I went there and I did uh, I, I got this evaluation and you know when you, you what's what's it called you know if you are a um, in, uh, introvert blood there's four letters oh yeah I, I know I don't remember what it's I called it's like this. a personality test that a no personality test and then that kind of shows kind of puts you into, okay, you should look into this type of, of job, this type at, of job. Yeah. But mostly in the end, what happened was I was trying to, uh, I was kind of keeping an ear on what people were doing that, that, had, that were leaving the Institute. And that was the most important. It's net, networking was ended up being the most important thing for sure. Networking is a big word that we've, I've heard on maybe like every episode of this. So yeah, far, because <laughs> someone who's, who's seen you, who knows you will interact with a different, in a different way. Will uh, will will talk about you to someone else that they work for with a different ease than someone that's just you know a, a, a CV a, a name on a paper, right? right? Of course. And um, and also people who you know come from where you come, so there's a commonality there. So the, it, it's very possible that things that work for them will work for you too. Right, and just the the career planning services, I feel like. Mm -hmm. I see the emails, but I, I don't really think too much about making use of those resources. So mm -hmm. that's good advice for people to use the resources that are available to us that sometimes we might not realize Def are there and think definitely. about. Definitely, and and uh, I, maybe this is not the point of the the sh the, the show, but if uh, if you have mental health issues, if you have anxiety, if you, you if something is uh, even uh, is becoming an obstacle to your daily you know, to working and being productive. Also, there's services at McGill, very good services that are offered. Use them. Go, go, and you you'll only win. You only gain by using them, and and taking care of yourself first, and then you'll be able to take yeah, care of your Yeah, it's super research. important to remember. Even the imposter syndrome thing that you mentioned is such a thing. It's important to know that everyone around probably also feels that way. Um, speaking of. McGill resources. Were you involved in any extracurriculars during your graduate studies? I was. I did do Brain Awareness Week, uh, one, you know, one year. But because you know, when when things are not going well, you don't feel like you have 
you know you, that you can do give time Extra to something stuff, else yeah the the thing that happened at the MNI at the time and I don't know how it is now but that was awesome was all the the like intramural uh, soccer team that I uh, you know I was part of that uh, I even played me a Portuguese guy like playing hockey I played hockey I learned how to skate I took the lessons and I was on the we were called the lobotomizers that was the name of our team <laughs> uh, and it was not the lobotomizers that they, they, we played hockey we we played soccer as the lobotomizers and softball so. That the social aspect, I was really blessed and lucky that that the BTRC and the the, the MNI was a great environment to to not feel alone and to actually be out there, go outside and uh, in the sun and play different sports uh, yeah. with with interesting and cool people. That sounds so fun. What are the most important non-academic skills that you've gained in mm-hmm. your extracurriculars or in the lab? Well, the Brain Awareness Week for sure made me. Uh, you know, it was an exercise of, of simplifying and of, of talking about things that are maybe, you know, quite complex to kids that are, I don't know, eight, nine years old or seven, eight, I don't remember. So that was kind of a moment that I, again, solidified this, this kind of desire I have to do that type of thing. But from my PhD, the, the non-academic skills uh, really perseverance against uh, obstacles, against adversity for sure, uh, and resilience. And that's a big one, and people may uh, under-evaluate how important it is uh, in your professional life to have this this skill. Then, the you know, just first curiosity, which I think is one, one of the big things that, that uh, keeps us, that's a commonality between all, all grad students is we're very curious people. We want to discover new things and learn new things. But with curiosity, after those five, six years, you get also that other superpower, which is you can you can dive deep into something and learn and kind of make yourself a specialist of this new thing. And I think that's the biggest one for sure. And then for me specifically, because I started as a medical writer, the writing part, you know, all the part where you had to, you know, do journal clubs and present uh, and and uh, present at uh, the the different. Uh, the student meetings, I don't remember how we would call it, at the Jane Timmins, where you had to present in front of the almost the whole institute. All of those things, it doesn't matter what you presented on, but the fact that you prepared, that you prepared figures, that you, uh, that you, you know, practiced what you were going to say, uh, that you said, okay, this thing, I'm, I'm not going to mention it because it's not, all of that builds up, builds up into your, your toolkit for sure. What are some of the things that you've learned from mm-hmm. other people through your own interviews that mm-hmm. you think would be helpful for graduate students to know? Okay, I they come from my experience, but also from, from all the interviews that I've done so far. And um, one of the things that I, and it's funny because it's things that I didn't do myself or not all of them when I was in the eye of the, <laughs> of the storm, you know. Uh, but it's I guess if we put it out there enough, people will start saying, okay, no, this is something I can do and I can take time. And, and well, the first one is to take time for big picture life planning. And because you can get this tunnel vision and then, you know, you, you enter the PhD and then five years later you come out kind of, you know, kind of, a, a, you know, a, I don't know, a bear coming out of hibernation, out of the cave and dazzled by the, the, the And sunlight. you have no idea what's going you on. You have no <laughs> idea what's going on. I think if it's hard because you feel that you know when especially when you're starting you're all like uh, excited to start and you want to dive into it completely 
and you maybe feel that it might be diverting you from that objective. But from day one, having kind of a life plan, thinking five, ten years ahead uh, is, a, is an exercise that can only help you. And I would say th the way to go about it with, you know, you don't want to be too granular in, the, in this in this planning, but set set long term objectives for yourself just to kind of make you work towards them. It, it'll to motivate you to work towards them. The, the thing that's very important because nothing is linear in this in this life in this planet we're on <laughs> is try to kind of kind of like a marvel right try to think of alternate universe a universe where you where you become a professor but then a universe where you become a bill nye the science guy you know <laughs> yeah. include in in this kind of map that you're drawing of the future alternate pathways, uh, alternate if you pathways. <laughs> yeah because you'll see that some of them will kind of erase themselves naturally along the way then some of them you'll have to choose between them but if you if you thought about them in advance you'll be a, you'll be better equipped to decide whenever the time comes and also if one of them just falls through completely that you kind of liked well you you won't be like okay i lost everything no i have plan b plan c um number two if now you you're already now looking into career options the the thing the first thing that I would say is reach out to alumni from where you you come from if if possible again like we were saying before networking is one of the most organic ways to learn about what's happening uh, professionally with people out there and uh, to eventually get job offers it's 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 a reality so look into what they're doing uh, what are they doing professionally if um, some of positions that interest you try to have coffee with them you know people will be happy to sh to just share a half an hour have a, have coffee you know and and kind of talk about what their experience is you can even ask them how did you you know transition what were your tools you can if you come prepared with some pointed questions they will be actually flattered and they'll feel like wow okay this person was prepared and um you know i'm, I'm happy that i could help because people especially we know that even PhDs that go very well, they're hard. They're a hard thing to do. So people are happy to give back. How's it been to be the interviewee, not the interviewer this time for you? <laughs> well, it's it's different. It's I'm on the other side of the of the mirror. Um, uh, it's cool because I I seldom you know I on my podcast I haven't yet uh, told my story. <laughs> yeah. So this is it's kind it's of nice an, to talk an, about an yourself intro. for a yeah, change. Well, yeah, it, and it makes me think about it, which is uh, which is uh, which is interesting too. Um, but uh, no, it's it's great. And I, again, I, in the same way that I was just saying, I'm super happy to be here in something that that uh, that's uh, related to H HBHL, to McGill, and to be giving back to the the the, the uni that I that that I that you know uh, how do I say welcomed me and uh, you know uh, that I was part of from uh, for a bunch of years. So no, that it's a, it's a great experience. Well, thank you so much, David. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Check out the Neural Pathways webpage to learn more about David and Papa PhD. Thanks for listening to another episode of Neural Pathways presented by Healthy Brains, Healthy Lives. Don't forget to check out our website, mcgill.ca slash hbhl, for links to previous episodes and resources. And follow HBHL on Twitter, at hbhlmcgill. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice so you'll never miss a new episode. See you next time!